I've got my crib sheet. You got your crib sheet. Very good. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. I'm here with my friend Dave Andrews, who is known to his real intimates as David L. Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> alright, we won't go to that. No, but seriously, you, you publish as David L. Andrews. Yeah. And uh, Dave is, for those who don't know his work, an extremely well-published and fantastic sports sociologist, sport cultural studies person. And um, is that because of the, the, the need to differentiate oneself? There are probably other David Andrews publishing? Or was that, have you always been David L. Andrews? Is that just part of you? Um... I've never been asked that in my life, but <laughs> I guess... That's because you live in the United States. I guess you can't have an academic called Dave Andrews, can you? It sounds kind of rather... Um, I don't know. It's a bit New Left Review-ish, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of 80s New Left Review political economy. Like I'm trying a bit too hard to, to, be, <laughs> to be a faux working-class hero, you know? Yeah. And uh, I've got a Saturday job as a, you know, um, I don't know... Put it, I'm not sure. That's a very good question. Let me think about that one. Well, one of, I remember an old joke that used to run about C.P. Snow, the physicist and novelist, and the guy who invented the term the corridors of power, and also the two cultures. And the old joke was that uh, he, he published as a novelist as C.P. Snow, and I think he was Charles Snow in his physics articles. But he, it was always said that he was known to his real friends as Lord Snow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because he in fact did, I think, become a peer. Maybe I've got delusions of grandeur that I like to have. My oh, Lovely, thank you. That's okay. Don't worry. No, we're you know it's an open mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm surprised I don't put Esquire after it. <laughs> <laughs> David L. Andrews Esquire. Yeah, maybe a bit too old. Um, for but anyway, I, I, I dropped that in partly as a joke, but also because people might want to follow up on your work, and it's it's available that way. And actually. My memory is you've got a pretty good website, don't you, Dave? Is that right? Well, I think we have a good uh, website on the, on the Physical Culture Studies programme. My, my website's a bit outdated, as, as those things are. You don't tend to kind of spend half your life um, updating them. But the PCS website's quite good. That's uh, www.umdpcs.org. Now, here's my question for you then, right. and this was actually where I, I wanted to, to jump off from. This whole term, physical cultural studies, I think of that as originating with you. Did you come up with that? No, certainly not. You didn't? Uh, no, no. I mean, um, I think there are a number of different people that you could attribute it to, mm -hmm. and I think what, in many ways, what we've been trying to do at Maryland is just kind of re rework, um, in, in my view, it's largely Alan Ingham's work. Now, if you go back to, and there are other people, but I, you know, I can, you know, a genealogy of our physical cultural studies would, I think, start with Alan Ingham's 1997 chapter um, toward a physical cultural studies. Now, he had a much broader and more ambitious and more perhaps aggressive kind of uh, idea and ambitions for it being the way to structure departments. And I think just great things, yeah. What we're looking at in many ways is how to organise a field of study um, centred around cultures of active embodiment within, if you like, the corporatised university and uh, the, kind of the pressures that are put on that within a department such as mm -hmm. sports studies or kinesiology or sport and exercise science dominated. So, but ironically, I think physical cu cultural studies has purchased within the cultural studies community, even though it may not be recognised as such. 
because there's increasingly a lot of work done that is centred around particular aspects of physical culture in, in, in various kind of niche areas of cultural studies more generally. Um, and what's slightly kind of um, surprising, or perhaps not, in sociology of sports, sports studies, we've never been very good at marketing or kind of disseminating our work, but a lot of the work that's been done in cultural studies focused on physical culture is being done as if nothing else has happened in relation to this, as if they've discovered this area and they yep. don't attribute yep. their work or kind of acknowledge the work that's been done you know, by yourself and, you know, three or four generations of people. Well, think of Alan Ingham. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ingham... Uh, published in one of the early uh, editions of Theory, Culture and Society, but you know, um, and other people did, Dave Whitson did as well, um, but you know, we don't get to see that and I think, you know, they're at this conference at the moment, I went through the, the, the uh, program today and there were a number of different physical cultural studies related topics that I would like to hazard a guess that don't uh, even acknowledge or probably are not aware of the work that's been done in that area previously. We're in La Jolla in Southern California and we're at the Cultural Studies Association brackets USA unbracket conference that Dave's referring to. The interesting thing about physical culture is it really takes us back to what, the 19th century as a term? You think, I think of it as a Germanic term about the development of the body. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Or I think that, no, no, that's right. And I think there's a number of different... Is it the etymology of the, the word is quite complex. Right. And I think we're trying to move away from that when it was uh, centred around like Bernard McFadden yeah. and uh, yeah. you know cultures of um, exercise hygiene and physicality and um, and also there's another um, derivation of it linked to kind of Soviet physical culture mm. Mm. and there's a very kind of anti um, I think Carl Newell in the in the late 80s wrote a piece of why physical culture couldn't be used uh, as, a, as a descriptive term because of that Soviet linkage. Well, we're trying to say that, you know, um, any term can be uh, reappropriated in different ways, and I think in some senses that's what we're, we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think largely, and this is partly our impetus, uh, is the fact that sport um, has become increasingly... Um, unhelpful, both strategically, politically, and intellectually. I think. Um, uh, I can see you, you want me to follow up on that, don't you? <laughs> and, and and it's not that um, sport should be ignored, but I think that um, oftentimes that we um, certainly in a department such as well, I mean, you, you get hurt both ways. If you're doing cultural studies within a kind of literary program, which a lot of people at this conference seem to be doing, and, and you, you touch on sport, there's a kind of anti-intellectual, um, and you've, you've come across that in your career, I know. Um, but also within uh, kinesiology sports science departments, sport has increasingly become trivialized. Um, but on top of that as well, so as, a, as a, an empirical site, if that's all we're doing, I don't think that's enough. Um, and I think that if you look at what's been going on in the sociology of sport for the last 15 to 20 years, people are doing much more than sport. They're focusing much more uh, on exercise, health, fitness cultures, uh, different forms of embodiment. So to, to label it all under sport seems um, inappropriate, I would say. And um, 
Also, you could add to the fact that the sociology of sport, and it, I've said this before, I guess, and it's a bit of a cliche, it's neither particularly sociological nor is it exclusively focused on sport. So why do we use that label when it's not very helpful for us? Right, right. Politically, intellectually, or, or whatever. So where would, and would there, perhaps there wouldn't be a thick dividing line between this and, say, medical cultural studies? Or biological cultural studies. Well, I think there's a definite crossover, and you yeah, know, and you could look at very other domains as well: dance studies, performance dance studies. studies, and of course, historically, in the United States, there are plenty of places where dance and kinesiology actually bizarrely end up administratively under the same. Sure, house. sure. I mean, I think I was at um, University of Alberta recently, and I think they've got an interesting relationship between uh, dance movement and cultural studies mm -hmm. and physical culture studies as well. So, you know, there are definitely crossovers but I think that what we're trying to look at and again any project of definition is impossible but if we're trying to think of physical culture physical culture as um, and Patricia Vitinsky talks about this nicely as movement being the raison d'etre of the um, the cultural form if you like and so we're looking at human movement, physical activity, and physical inactivity as well, because it's not only the cultures of physical activity that we're interested in, but those that uh, disenable activity to take place. And I think, oops, <laughs> what we're trying to do is um, look at the, the relationship between various domains, various scales of physical culture, and um, the extent power relations, the operations of power, how they kind of manifest themselves within and through the physical culture as institutionalized, that's relation to ideology, as practiced, as, it, as it embodied and as experienced. So there's various domains and various sites of empirical engagement that we're looking at um, that I think is just a lot broader than um, people perhaps can perceive it to be mm. to start with. Getting back to something you said earlier that interested me, I mean everything you say interested me, Davis, <laughs> you know. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it sounded as though when you were talking about people who are coming from a textualist perspective or maybe are in literary studies or, or sometimes performance or dance, this is a helpful armature against criticisms of anti-intellectualism or triviality. It sounds as though for people who are in kinesiology, sports sciences, sports studies, and by the way, the Chancellor of my university is a sports scientist, exercise scientist, who, like all of them, has had a heart attack. <laughs> and like all of them, knows shit for, doesn't know shit from Shane Oh, sorry. Luckily, I pay for this podcast, so I get to say, you know, what so I you like. like. Yeah, yeah, it's not on my CV, so I don't have to go through institutional review boards to get you to sign a consent. I haven't for. signed anything. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of, on the other hand, it's it's an assertive statement against the hegemony of that um, deeply applied and itself profoundly anti-intellectual scientism hmm. of that field. And then in the third sense, it's also a shout out to folks, especially within cultural studies, which is where I think you locate yourself, who actually are a bit sloppy about learning what the field of discourse is that they're entering. Mm. Not just scholastically, although that's very important, but in terms of how it circulates more generally. So I think I now understand better than I did before the strategic and tactical relevance of the term, and I, I very much appreciate it. 
And the other thing that interested me about what you said was this response to the corporatization of the university. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Well, I mean, um, in a university such as, you know, the University of Maryland is no different from anywhere else. It's probably kind of quite an exemplary institution in many ways. But mm. and in one way that it is, is the fact that increasingly um, the social sciences of humanities, and especially social, social sciences as construed in a very narrow way, uh, are looking to um, support um, the type of work that is not only grant funded, but it's going to generate significant size of grants. And as you know, um, that, that type of work tends to be anchored in, in the scientism to which you refer. And um, if you're trying to do critical interpretive work looking at forms of relationship between power and embodiment, A, it's not going to be funded to the degree that um, the, the provost or your dean or your, even your head of department would like. So there, there are pressures. Uh, institutional pressures to kind of conform to that particular model and that's particularly when you're located in the School of Public Health and that then we have the uh, the emergent kind of pressures centered around particular understanding understandings of healthism and uh, very narrow kind of neoliberal understandings of health and the healthy body and what the type of work that can kind of realize that project and you know um, the healthy citizen consumer is, is there for us all to see and that's our role our role in life is to somehow kind of reenact that uh, through our research and it's not as simple as that and it's not within the purview of what we do in fact uh, so critical work becomes shunted as you know it's marginalized uh, and we become um, useful in, in the classroom because we teach classes that uh, generate income but our um, research isn't valued because it doesn't generate the type of knowledge that they want or the type of money that they want. So that, there's a kind of number of ways and certainly sports studies, physical cultural studies isn't alone in this but um, it seems we're at the sharp end of that type of pressure. Well, it's, it's unusual in cultural studies in that it is often located inside not just the social sciences but actually the sciences and, and that's what you're describing and yeah, there yeah. in this country, United States, Things are driven by grant opportunities, as specified realistically by the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Mental Health, and the National Science Foundation. Right. And I imagine the pickings are pretty slim for the sort of work that, that you do. Well, to be quite honest, we've, we've tried and we're trying to kind of um, engage or engage with those funding bodies while keeping true to what we do, and it's. It's proved very, very difficult in as much as the NIH model tends to um, it demands, it says it's being much more open, much more qualitative in its focus, but it demands particular epistemologies and uh, methods and um, uh, it's a struggle. And I don't know if it's a struggle that can be, re be successfully realised without compromising you know, what it is what you, you do. But I guess... My experience of some of these things is that you get marks for trying. So if your colleagues know that you're actually putting your hat in, they like it. That's very true. That's very true. Um, and remarkably so, as much. And it's um, yeah, I've come, I've noticed that in the last couple of years that um, as we've tried to engage, you know, to to involve ourselves in quote unquote team Hello. science. Hi. 
Would you like another glass of wine? Does the Pope wear a dress? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, please. Everything else okay, though? Prof, do you need anything more to oh, eat or drink? I'm or good, you, thank you're you. Happy? Yes, okay. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, I can't remember where we were. Well, where you were. Where was I was. You're, you're using the <laughs> almost morganatic we with incredible confidence and rapidity and so on. But we're trying, you were saying, within your department, I guess, to put in for these grants over the last couple of years, and you are getting some recognition, at least from your own colleagues, that you're trying. Well, yeah, that we're seem, seeming to be playing their game. Yeah, playing their game, even and though they know that you're a different kind of animal. Yeah, and I don't know what will happen when it, it may come to naught, because yeah. I think that you have to decide, either you go all the way and, and, and compromise, or you... Now, what about... I mean, I've met, <laughs> you know, nurses and doctors and so on, who are Foucauldians, <laughs> they're out there, and there are lots of people who are kind of Baudrillardian, actually, without quite putting a name to it. Any chance of having a rapprochement with really empirical scholars of that field and getting them on board? The reason I ask is that a guy, I actually published in a medical journal because there was a guy who's a rats and stats person who actually liked my work. And it's an amazing gravy train once you're on it. I mean, you keep writing the same thing and it gets published in 50,000 journals. Well, I do that anyway, but, you know, <laughs> including in books you edit, by the way. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> um, what, have you tried collaborating with those inside the scientific discourse? Who are sympathetic? Well, your your network is is better than mine anyway to start with. Not so. just my network, myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I think that you're right, and, and I think that I've noticed that there's a couple of people in my department. One guy, Steve Roth, who's a geneticist, and any decent quote unquote scientist. Oh, they're all historians. Yeah, geneticists are historians. Yeah, they recognise the inadequacies of the narrow scientific model, and they're looking for something else. Mm -hmm. So I think that rapprochement, as you say. You know, I think it's, there's a possibilities for it, but you have to have, um, dare I say, enlightened, but you know, imaginative people working at both ends mm -hmm. who are willing to cross that divide. And um, I think if you find the right people, then uh, I think that's right. You know, our, our friend Jim Mackay, right. who's been in the pod, I mean, his master's degree, I think, was one of those things, it's, it's about the correct angle at which the foot comes down to kick the ball through the goalposts, right? I mean, wow. Yeah, he. I think he was a history major, but then he did a master's on, you know, bullshit. I think. <laughs> anyway, Rick. Uh, sorry, Jim will correct me uh, quickly if I'm wrong. But you see, I think that. No. It, 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 thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm kidding. Talk about you know the fragment, the fragmentation and the silos that are created, mm. and those silos are quite. Um, rigid uh, as yeah. they're presently operating and there's yeah. a big push for, uh, to you know transcend these these boundaries but it seems to me that go ahead that every time they're being transcended it's being done on 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 the terms of the dominant way of seeing of way of knowing of knowledge generation which tends to be the bioscientific model right <laughs> i'm trying to hide my stupid my stupid phone so you know it's not you know, I think they need to get to an anti-disciplinary moment yeah. rather than going through this uh, uh, superficial interdisciplinarity, which is what it is at the moment. Mm -hmm. We need to get beyond that, but it, it needs people who are willing to do it. And I think 
they're all, you know, on the on the publish and perish gravy train, not gravy train, uh, conveyor belt, and they're focused, narrowly focused. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you a question about the we? Uh, not just in terms of Maryland, but in terms of the physical cultural studies movement, if, I, if we can call it that. That's a bit strong. What, what sorts of backgrounds and what sorts of people are we talking about here who are signed up? I don't know. You know, I don't know how many people would willingly sign up to it because all I, I think about is um, the the institutional pressures that we face and how we've strategically responded to that at Maryland and by kind of institutionalising a programme called Physical Cultural Studies. Now, we're not alone in that. Alan Ingham kind of foretold the type of pressures that we'd be facing, you know, what, what was it, 80, uh, however many years ago, it was 15 years ago, if not more. But, and I think there are a number of other people uh, around the world. If you look at in other parts of North America, in Canada, in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, who are um, going through the same things. They might not call it physical cultural studies, but effectively, I think that's it could be construed as that's what they're doing. That's what they're responding to, these pressures, and that their work is evolving beyond a narrow focus on sport. It's engaging more disciplinary influences, um, and it's trying to, uh, you know... Yeah. So the we I'm talking about is a kind of... I suppose I'm hiding behind that in some senses. You know? I don't know what the we is. It's, uh, I'd like it to be... Um, in some senses, just what we're trying to do at Maryland. But as I say, we're by no means unique, and uh, maybe the uh, experiences that we have and what we ha we're trying to do can have some kind of uh, influence or can assist in other people who are going through similar things. It's not an empire building, let's put it that way, which I think is what some people construe it as such. It's just kind of we're trying to make sure that we're there, not, not, not only next year, but next week. Well, I think there's real importance in institutionalising things. It's one of the weaknesses of cultural studies not to do that. For those who don't know, Dave, uh, there could be no less imperialistic person that I know, at the same time as he is an incredible leader of men. No, sorry. <laughs> He's someone whose work has inspired me for years and years. I first met you, I think, about a decade ago. Right. But I've read your work since probably the late 90s. Um, and uh, it's always provocative, incredibly interesting, and taking a different angle on sometimes well-known topics and sometimes providing a, an interesting angle on topics that haven't been much addressed, but always worth reading, always exciting and provocative and new. Mm, thank you. So that's my entree to asking you what you're working on now. Well, apart from survival, survival is you know, um, well, a lot of what we're doing, and I've got, I happen to have a, a very kind of uh, committed, innovative, and um, imaginative group of doctoral students working with me at the moment and uh, a lot of what we're doing is, is focused around Baltimore and um, in various dimensions looking at physical culture within Baltimore and looking um, really at the, um, the levels of um, injustice and inequality that become operationalized to use uh, a term from 
the other side within and through physical culture and a lot of this is um, community-based kind of analyses uh, that we're just starting off on to try and even compare um, cultures of privilege and cultures of un underprivilege uh, in terms of physical activity and um, physical culture, physical activity infrastructure and how, um, if you like, um, policy, uh, welfare managerialism um, being cast aside and, you know, the entrepreneurial governments of a city like um, Baltimore has created stark and I would say um, quite chilling um, distinctions in the lives of its populace and you know it may be portrayed in the wire but you know if you live there if you observe it you can see cultures of privilege butting up against quite literally uh, Ben Carrington doesn't like the word literally so that's for you Ben quite literally <laughs> I think quite uh, literally it's also an obsession in the Guardian Football Weekly podcast <laughs> yeah. because is it um, Jamie Redknapp right who is a an ex-British footballer, the son of a criminal, unconvicted criminal and moron. <laughs> and future England uh, and future England unconvicted criminal and moron. Uh, Jamie Carragher is incapable of speaking, well he's incapable, almost incapable of speaking, but he's incapable of speaking for more about two minutes without saying quite literally. Yes. So he, he, he will say things like, it's quite capable. literally a metaphor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carrington's got me um, obsessed with that one anyway. Um, but no, a lot, and there are multi kind of, and I, and I think in a way what we're trying to do is demonstrate the different levels of empirical engagement from the level of lived experience through to policy and uh, discourse analysis mm -hmm. of, of local government policy and, and kind of national federal government, to be honest, and how they're impacting on uh, the lives, the opportunities for physical culture of, of what is a, a very divergent population. <laughs> Now this is a, a very interesting paradox. I mean, it's a pity we can't not mention the wire. Yes. We we have to mention the wire, but it's also interesting as a metaphor in terms of walking along a wire, because on the one hand there's a long-standing discourse not only in this country but almost everywhere about you know uh, stay on the basketball court and you stay out of the criminal court, and you know more physical activity means less teenage pregnancy, all that crap that is used to justify a moral regulation, but also is used to justify the acquisition of more facilities for people who are underprivileged. Sure, sure. So how do you deal with that in talking about you know, the infrastructure that is very bigoted or differential in the options, the opportunities, the possibilities that it offers to people based on class and race? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, uh, you know, you're right, you're, you're negotiating that, 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 that tension. The, the tension on that wire is, is pretty um, stark. And um, I think that what we're trying to do, though, it, it, in many ways, is to expose the uh, inadequacies of, on one level in the way that physical activity provision is um, offered or provided for uh, groups on, in such a haphazard way and, um, and how um, neoliberal ideology has become, you know, unconsciously taken up by government, local government officials and drives 
so much about policy decision making without them even realising it. In the case in point, in Baltimore they're going, they're going through. Um, I don't want to get you know into the minutiae, but no, Baltimore do, politics. Because, no, the fact is, all over the world, people are now interested in Baltimore. True. Because true. of the unmentionable. That's true. <laughs> um, but. You know, in the 1980s, there are you know in the recreation centre, which is the focus of um, some of our work, um, is a problematic space um, for the very reasons that you say that it, it's oftentimes used as a, um, a space of policing rather than a space of opportunity. Um, however, you know, it, it has offered something for many communities in Baltimore over the last, you know, since the 1950s, but it's gone down in number from 140 in 1980, 55 at the moment, and last year, last year um, there, there were, a decision was made that they were going to produce a much smaller number of publicly funded community centres, I think it was one for every 50,000 of population, and the rest of them were going to go out to private tender. So it's the classic neoliberalisation of a public service, and of course very few people want to take on a rec centre as a, a for-profit entity because it, in many communities it's not a for-profit um, opportunity. And so It's just an alibi, isn't it, really? To kind of, you know, it's retrenchment um, classic retrenchment within the recreation frame and so part of what we're looking at that and um, but what you do I think you're right that um, the, the rhetoric that is used to justify funding for physical activity amongst poor populations is you know almost ex you know we need this and uh, otherwise what are, what are the kids going to do they're going to be out on the streets causing trouble and verbatim that is virtually what was discussed over a number of years when they were talking about in the summer closing swimming pools early but the thing is I mean I think that kind of high welfareism which is deeply offensive and as you say is a policing technology is fucking infinitely preferable to this neoliberal bullshit of privatising everything because the, the outcome of one is the provision of services and the outcome of another is the denial of services yeah but it's the, not only the I mean, I think Will Quant would have something to say about that, but... Um, well, yeah, he, <laughs> and your point would be? Well, no, 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 I think you're right. I think that is preferable, but there has to be something more, more preferable no, than course, that high course. welfare, isn't no, it? I'm just, it? No, there's a moral technology that's incredibly insidious and invidious, and we don't want to support. I, I, I'm yeah. Really, yeah, yeah, but if you're going to have, yeah, if yeah. you had to choose between the two, of yeah. course you would, but I think <laughs> not to... Uh, invoke Tony Blair, but there has to be a third way, does there not? Oh, <laughs> oh God. Sorry about that. No. Um, and and I'm, not, I'm not sure what that is, and that's perhaps, we're always told about translational research and what's the practical application of what we do. Well, you know, maybe we're theorising and philosophising on possibilities. Well, those possibilities haven't been realised, and we, we need to think about what they are. Well, to me, the, the, the key thing is to turn it around from the, the neoliberal model, which claims to be demotic mm. because it is about the unleashing of consumer preferences, supposedly already fully formed as if by nature, uh, versus the welfareist model, which claims to be in the best interests of those in, of, for whom it speaks, but both of which are in fact top-down models right. of governmentality.
I don't need to tell you this. Why not, accepting that those discourses are likely to be dominant, go to people, show faith in them who are in the electorate, mm -hmm. and say, what do you want, when do you want it, and how do you want it? Well, I think that's what CBPR is, uh, you know, community-based participatory research is trying to do, and that's perhaps, in an ideal world, how policy would be driven. But from my knowledge of the way that um, recreation and public policy in, in cities such as Baltimore operates, is uh, there is a um, seemingly superficial engagement with the publics uh, and but it's all, all it is is superficial yeah and the, and the same top-down model operates. operates I'm thinking of the places like Kerala in India where the way that the former Marxist government that ran the state for 15 years went about its business was to go into local entities towns villages and so on and say Here's the water expert, he's a hydrologist, she's a hydrologist, she knows what can be done and what the impacts are. Now you tell us what you want, here's the money that we know is available. She'll tell you whether she thinks it's possible or not possible and what the costs and benefits are, but you're going to decide. You tell us. Mm. And there are a couple of municipalities in Brazil as well, you know, where the left has actually held power, and by the left I don't mean Blairism, I don't mean social democrats, I mean the serious left, you know, people like us, us, who want there to be popular democracy, who want votes, who don't want uh, vanguardist Leninism in any sense, mm. but who think that a real leftism, a kind of Bernie Sanders leftism in US terms, is about find out what people want and give it to them. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how many people I've heard interviewed in Vermont about Bernie, who say things in response to questioners who ask, what do you think about having a socialist as a senator? Who say, I don't know what socialism is. He cares about us. Mm. When I tell him I want something that I think is good for other people, he tries to get it. I remember once listening to uh, Julius Nereri, the former president of Tanzania, speaking, where he was asked by a redneck, moronic, i.e. right-wing white think tanker from the Metropole, what he thought in the context of the then recent decline of the Soviet Union and the state socialist system as a polarity and said, I don't know what you're talking about. If you mean health care for everybody and education for everybody, then we had that in Tanzania and now that the IMF has changed everything, all the doctors have left, there are no medical schools and people don't go to university. So if what we had was socialism, then I'm all in favour of it. But you're talking there about kind of quite quite leaders who have some ideological vision uh, that they, they Not want. Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> I, I don't see that in any major metropolitan area in the U.S. It would be an impossibility, I think, for someone like that to um, to come Bernie to power. Bernie Sanders was. Mayor of Burlington, before he became for member Burlington. of the House of Representatives, before he became the senator for, for a state that is very oh. ideologically conflicted. Now, having said that, it may be the only municipality, certainly the only, the only area politically that I know of in the world that bans outdoor advertising. I mean, you know, well. walk, drive along the freeways of Vermont, you won't see a single sign for anything other than 
bears for next 50 <laughs> kilometres or turn left to go to Massachusetts. I rest my case. You know? <laughs> um, but no, seriously, I mean, I don't see... And that's why um, I think these labels, you know, Democrat within the context of, you know, American urban governance is, is pretty meaningless. Yeah. And um, it, it, I think that they are lacking in ideological kind of um, frameworks that drive, you know, drive their approach to governing the city. It's yeah. just a careerist politician move yeah. that, um, so I don't see that, I, unfortunately, I, I, I'm not painting a very happy picture, but I don't see, and I think that type of democratic involvement in public policy, you know, is what you need to get um, meaningful change, but I don't see that happening. I don't see, well, do you? I mean, you, you know America better than I do. Well, I wouldn't say that. I think quite the opposite, actually. I think you're right, but I think there are pockets. Um, there aren't very many of those pockets. I don't know if you've read Andrew Ross's new book about Phoenix. Hmm. No. Um, it's very interesting. Hello, I was wondering whether it might be possible to get something I saw over there, which looked like, you know, not French fries, but they're sweet potato fries. Would you would you have one or two of those, I'd Dave? Have, I'd, I'd have one, I reckon. Yeah. One. Yeah. Could we have more than one, but not <laughs> more than 50? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, sure. And instead of tomato sauce or, or ketchup, sorry, is it possible to have mustard or something a bit yeah. more interesting? Is that okay with you, oh, Dave? Sounds good. Yeah. And can I hand you this very heavy object? Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Do you want any more ginger ale? Okay. More ginger ale? Can I have another one, please? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Can I get a cup of tea? Yes. So caffeinated or caffeinated? Just yeah, caffeinated black. Earl Build, Grey or awake? Builders awake. What's that? It's a our black tea. It's a it's a Tazo tea. We get from Starbucks. Builders tea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, I'll have that. Whatever that is, as long okay. as it's black, it's okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Do you edit this? No. <laughs> okay. Can you just just for our. Very international audience, 50 countries, people from 50 countries listen every week. Really? 50? Wow. Can you define builder's tea? <laughs> well, I think if you put your, uh, it's got so much sugar in it that if you put your spoon in there, it stands vertically up. Yeah. It's a wonderfully British concept. You couldn't go into Starbucks and say, Eel, I'll builder's tea, don't you? No, but I do, I do notice that there's a, um, a commercial in Britain, isn't there, that, about Yorkshire tea? That they're bringing Yorkshire tea to America. To um, there, there's a van that goes around. It, it, it gives um, people visiting or expats from England or Britain um, Yorkshire tea because they're, <laughs> they're sick of the crap American tea. <laughs> anyway, Andrew's book about Phoenix is very interesting. It's about the environmental despoliation of the area in general and how it maps onto race and class as you can imagine but it's quite interesting in terms of some of the city government utopias many of which are problematic and some of which probably aren't you know, mm. and it's a product of I think 200 interviews well worth having a look at and Phoenix well, policymakers yeah policymakers and activists you name wow. it and it's one of these towns these cities that is um, probably unsustainable. I mean, it's been described as the least sustainable ecologically city in the world. Wow. But it has some people running it who are quite interesting in what they do and don't want to do, and it has lots of wards that have quite interesting politics. 
But anyway, no, I, I hear what you're saying, and I and I appreciate that. But I would I would say on a more positive note that you do notice, and you must be have seen this, you know, numerous ways that you know power is productive, to to, to um, and generative, in as much as it, it does kind of spur responses to um, injustice and inequality, and and you do see these. Um, pockets of resistance against it and certainly in a city like Baltimore there are kind of volunteerist uh, and quite innovative and interesting you no know, the the urban farm type of development and the same in Detroit like, right yeah very powerful yeah. yeah yeah and so maybe that's I mean I don't know if that could spread into other areas of, of city life the other, other spheres and you know of course I think physical culture and we talk about the food desert you know, this is what we're trying to argue, that is, or trying to see if it exists, is there such a thing as the physical activity desert? Do uh, people have differential opportunity and access to health-inducing uh, in environments and, and facilities? And of course the answer is yes. You know, not only do they uh, have differential access, but they've got differential mobilities that allow them that access. Let me ask you a question about that, and we've got about 20 minutes left, and in that time I'd love, after you've answered this, for you to talk a bit more about your glittering career. No. <laughs> That's, all right, go on. All right, not that one, the other career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, on that front, one of the things I've noticed is the way in which basketball, more than anything else, I think is a field of contestation in these matters, mm. in that on the one hand it is completely derided, it's vilified, it's demonised as the kind of all-black masculinity spectacle mm. and sight, mm. especially in places like Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York. Mm. On the other hand, it was of course created as a moral technology mm. to control working-class urban masculinity. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you see that as a site playing out? And I say this partly because, you know, you're the author and co-author of several works on basketball topics. Yeah, um, I think it's quite interesting that, um, that you should pick on basketball because in, in some of the observations that, that have been made related to um, what many of these communities care about and want, with regard to their newly uh, constructed community centres, many of them voice the opinion that what we don't want is another basketball court. Thank you very much. And there is another. Just black, so you don't want anything else, That's right? That's right. Okay. Yes. Fantastic. Cheers. Here you go. Thank you. You're welcome. So I think there's an acknowledgement of. Um, they the, say they don't want another basketball no, because there, there's you know um, essentializing black cultures being related you know, and centred around basketball and solely basketball. And uh, I think that was kind of quite, I'm not saying that's everywhere, but that was a, an identifiable response. And for those who, who don't know the why, Baltimore is in many ways a black town. Well, 65% of the, the city population roughly is um, African-American. Um, and whereas the metropolitan area is predominantly uh, white. Um, so, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, David Harvey refers it to, to the uh, uh, social laboratory of contemporary urbanism because that's why it's interesting as much as it's an exemplary American city. So when they say they don't want another basketball court, 
is that tapping into this question I just raised, or is it something else? Do they give reasons for this? I think that um, well, it's something we need to look into much more deeply. But I, I think the, there is a, an assumption, um, but not that it's spoken about in these terms, that there's a sick of essentializing, you know, the black body in particular ways, and in its relationship with basketball being one of them. And, um, and I think that many communities realise that that's um, self-defeating in many ways. That it's not only basketball; it has to be, you know, a whole array of provision of services and facilities and programs and opportunities that other communities are afforded that they're not not just slapping a basketball court on even if it's you know made with re, re, recycled Nike shoes or whatever and got a big logo on it it's, it's not enough so you know people living in communities are more aware of their of, of their situations and their lack of opportunity than perhaps some policymakers yeah, think they are. Acknowledge. Yeah, great point. Great point. So I wonder if we could now turn a bit to your glittering career, and I know you'll be ridiculously diffident about this, but I want you to man up. I want you to post up. I've never manned up. <laughs> well, I, I don't post up, right? I don't want to hear about that kind of talk. Right. Not on this part. <laughs> well, more that round here. <laughs> so what we would say? Okay, go on. What? Well, no, to be serious, uh, you've written a book, you've edited a couple of books that I'm aware of, you've published God knows how many articles. If I were asked to sum you up, I'd say your work is really, along with that of C.L. Cole, uh, the scholar formerly known as Cheryl Cole, sometimes Cheryl L. Cole. No, and I say this not to, not to mock Cole, who is a friend of mine whom I love very much, but just to make sure people know how to get the right bibliographical references, as in David L. Andrews, the scholar formerly known as C.P. Snow. <laughs> uh, I would see you and Cole as the uh, real originators, certainly in the English language, of applying uh, Foucauldian feminist analysis to sport. Um, and Baudrillard, I see, is also being an important influence on your work. But somehow, or other, the way you're talking today, you sound like an absolute Foucauldian. So I wonder if you could run by us those sorts of influences on you. Or if I got that all wrong, you're shaking your head and looking quizzical. No, I, I, I see those influences, but I think fundamentally I'm a kind of... come out of a, a particular understanding of cultural studies, largely influenced, you know, it's, it's the traditional route for someone who is trained at Illinois, I guess. Uh, a Hallian, Grossberg in, informed uh, cultural studies, contextual cultural studies. And I think that, that fundamentally is what kind of drives my work. And my students are kind of totally bored by it, but I, I always get back to that. And we read, you know, um, much of that early literature through the 60s, 70s and 80s, up to about 1987, you know, and, and that, that has been as the foundational text for what we do in contextual physical cultural studies. And that's just my physical cultural studies, but, and I think that the layers, the interpretive layers on top of that are derived from uh, a Foucauldian kind of informed approaches and used to be more kind of Baudrillardian, but, you know, like, 
t-shirts. They, Stuart Hall quote, you know, they they go in and out of favour, don't they? But uh, I think there's still a Baudrillardian element and a, you know Foucauldian work has informed our understanding of sport and physical culture and neoliberalism definitely. And, um, but I, I think fundamentally it's a contextual cultural studies approach. As per Stuart Hall and Larry Grossberg. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, and um, and I guess my my view is that within uh, sports studies and even within this conference now, I don't knock the conference, but I kind of go well, you know, there is no singular cultural studies, but that is one cultural studies that would seem to be important. But uh, I'm not saying has been forgotten because it hasn't. There's a whole cottage industry and more of you know Birmingham re. Redo, redux, whatever, uh, and, uh, but I don't see it here. And I, don't, and, I, and I think many people can do cultural studies uh, and seemingly um, ignore it. It's kind of strange. And I remember your, the, the diagram that you did for your the, the, the handbook of cultural studies. Remember the diagram with all the different. Um, well, borrowed from Richard Maxwell, who'd done it for a sociology book, but yes. Yeah, I mean. And, and I think that, you know, you identified the relationship between, you know, Birmingham and American-generated uh, cultural studies and Foucault, and, you know, French theory very nicely. And I think that that type of schematic needs to be kind of rethought and or reworked and uh, re-invoked periodically. Yeah. 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 Are we sounding like yes. angry old... Yes. yes. Is this Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon? Is that a as long as I'm Walter Matthau, you can be Jack Lemon, right? I don't know which one. Oh, Walter Matthau had the rug. Yeah. I don't want a rug. <laughs> yeah, I'd look a bit ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I don't know. No, I don't think well, so. You are I taller than me. That's Jack true. Jack Lemon was very short. I don't really want to be as you, short as that. Michael you take the lemon, okay? I'll take lemon, <laughs> yeah. and you'll take Berlin. <laughs> um, no, I don't think we are. I, I mean, of course you're anchored in your, to some degree, in your, in your theoretical past, but I don't know. Um, I think it's important. I, I, you know, um, no, I don't think we are kind of resentful, bitter, angry old men. No. You know. <laughs> well, I should say Dave is significantly younger than I am. No. But in, in all of this, uh, one of the things that I know is that within the sociology of sport world, where I'm really only a fellow traveller, I'm not an expert, but Dave is a leader without wishing to be so. You've inspired by now generations of young people in terms of graduate students, probably undergrads too, but I know grad students, in a way that Larry Grossberg has done at Illinois in the past and I imagine in the last 15 years or whatever it is at North Carolina. Uh, there is a constituency out there. You mentioned University of Alberta. I've visited there too. There's a real constituency there. There's a hunger amongst people working in and on the fringes of kinesiology, sports science, history and sociology of sport, they know something's wrong. Right. And right. you're a very important beacon-like figure for them. Well, uh, well, thank you for saying that, but I'm not sure. I mean, many of those people um, that you, you talk about came through, were educated, and I'm not privileging Illinois over the other institutions, but came out of Illinois at a particular time. 
And so, you know, Pirku Markula, Jim Dennison at Alberta, you know, they were, you know, in my cohort at Illinois. And so it's perhaps no wonder that have, having had similar influences, they've got similar projects at their institutions. So when you, you mention Illinois, people will tell from your accent that you're not from the United States. Where, what took you from Britain to Illinois? Um, circumstance, I guess. I mean, and, and I wanted to do a master's degree, and at that point in time, there were the opportunities in England were not really there. It's not like now. I mean, there's the the um, the movement from uh, from Britain, uh, United Kingdom, to the North America uh, uh, graduate. The, the model, yeah, yeah, has, has dried up because of the opportunities now that are in in the UK, which is great. And if it, if I'd have done it then. I wouldn't be here. And did you come to, you didn't come to Institute for Communication Research or Department of Speech Communication where Larry was? No, no, I, I, I went to kinesiology. I was, a, I, uh, and I'm proud to say, I was a physical, physical education teacher yeah. in um, South London uh, and taught there for two years, school closed. Uh, it, was a, it was the school that Derek Underwood went to. And it, who once coached me. I was really? once coached by Derek Underwood and John Edridge. Wow. For an afternoon. And I think they almost fell over laughing. These are <laughs> two of the most important Deleuzeans in British <laughs> philosophy. <Cricket> in history. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was the natural thing for me to do to go to kinesiology. But luckily my advisor, John Roy, um, recognised my interest in cultural studies and said, yeah, we can... We can do so much for you here, but you need to go over and work with Grossberg and Denzin, Paula Tripler. Thank you very much, sir. Greatly People like it. this, and so... Ketchup, you know, mustard, or... Uh, some mustard would be great. Is mustard a... Yeah, that's no, cool. Just, yeah. I just, so that was a great opportunity. I mean, I never realised um, how lucky I was to really to end up there. So um, it was the institution. And, and I, I didn't know just, John Loy was at Illinois, actually. He was... And the reason John Loy is really... For those interested in these topics, I think a more seminal figure, a more central figure, more of a crux to the qualitative and politicised turn in the sociology of sport than almost anybody else I could name. Well, I think he is in many ways, although I don't think he would identify himself as such. Well, no think, one would. But he recognised that um, people, what people's interests were and he was the type of advisor who would, you know, not be uh, protective or um, overly, you know, um, can't think of the word. He wouldn't protect his advisees. He would allow them to go out and to further their yeah. own interests. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think he recognised there was a generation of people coming through that, that weren't directly interested in what he was doing. Thank you, Squire. Enjoy. Much appreciated. <laughs> Or work. Okay. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Dave, but I was once in the University of Illinois walking around and I found a copy of your PhD God. in the hallway. <laughs> Been thrown out. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think, how can I phrase this in a diplomatic way to an old friend whom I care about? It was being recatalogued <laughs> by the popular classes. Oh, you got well, mustard. We did. Well, here's more. Thank you. <laughs> Now, you've never told me that one, but I will. Uh, that's a good story. I like that one. And most Re of my stories are made up. I think this one may be true. Sounds true. I mean, I'll go back there and to see if anyone can trace it. And if not, <laughs> it's true.
It was somewhere near that bizarre area that looked like a basketball court but was also a military training area. And that had a running track around the top of it. It was oh. near Institute of Communication. Oh, the armory. Yes, the armory. Gosh. Well, it's, you know, it's true. We'll, we'll take it as read. So you went there to do a master's? Yeah. And then you stayed on for the doctorate? That's right, yeah. Also with John Lloyd? Oh, no. Yeah, um, he, he left midway through my, to go to New Zealand to University of Otago. And so in the end, um, the chair of my dissertation committee was Norman Denzel. So, and he was very supportive and kind towards me. So, and you know, and, and I should say as well, he's, he was a big influence and has been a big influence mm -hmm. on me. You know, and you know, Grossberg and Denzin have got a different take on cultural studies, um, but I can perhaps operate somewhere in the middle of it. So, you emerge with this PhD directed, as they say in this great country, by a very distinguished sociologist affiliated with symbolic interactionism and with cultural studies. Mm -hmm. And then you land in Memphis, if I got that right? That's right, yeah. And what were you up to there? How did you get a job in Memphis? Well, I didn't get a job for a year, and I was doing part-time work, you know, at various small colleges and a bit of work at Illinois, and then... Um, uh, Ralph Wilcox uh, at Illinois, a good English guy, was head of department and was kind enough to hire me for my first kind of proper job. So um, we went down there seven year, for seven years and enjoyed it a lot. And what was the institutional affiliation? It was, uh, you know, oh gosh, I think it was the Department of Human Movement Sciences and Education in a, in a college of education. So that brought with it some interesting um, issues, let's put it that way. But um, it was, it was, anyway, I, I can't um, speak highly enough of Ralph. Kind of, he uh, allowed me to kind of um, develop in, in a, you know, in a, in a really good way. Now, here's a question about all of that. At some level, both there and then, I guess you went from. Memphis to Baltimore, to Maryland. Yeah, College Park, Baltimore. Sorry, it's, it's, um, uh, it's northwest of DC. Yes, I, I apologise. I actually, <laughs> in some vague way, know that having been there. But you are able to take advantage of that small but not insignificant space within the sociology of sports slash kinesiology slash human movement studies that cynically and perhaps accurately one could say is, as you indicated earlier, the space opened up by the desire to teach large numbers of, of students things that they find quite interesting. Yeah. But nevertheless is one that kinesiologists and others who dominate these departments tolerate in some way. Why do they tolerate it and why do they tolerate you? Um, I think they tolerate it, the administrators tolerate it because um, they are popular classes, whether they're taught well or not, who knows, but they are popular classes and uh, for example in summer and winter sessions where money is generated directly for department costs, they, they bring in a lot of you know, um, seats. Um, why? I'm not sure the degree to which 
our research is tolerated as much as I would like to think it was. Um, I think we are, and we're, we're trying to kind of um, fight against that, to, to kind of publicise and promote what we do more forcefully, but that's, a, that's an ongoing battle. Um, and some of our more enlightened colleagues value what we do, others dismiss it out of hand. But that's probably true in any department, you know. If you're in a, if you're in a sociology department dominated by demographers, they're going to think a cultural sociologist is a, an absolute waste of time and space and money. So I don't think it's any anything unique to kinesiology necessarily. What I think is kind of what hampers physical cultural studies, sociology of sport perhaps, is the fact that we have a struggle within our own departments and then a struggle for legitimacy within the domains that we try and operate with. Sociology, cultural studies, you know, urban studies. There's always you know, a double Those bigger tension. areas, wider yeah. areas, themselves don't recognise what we do. Well, I think it's, you know, it's always a surprise thing, not, you know, that we're doing and the quality of our work is such that they're, you know, the eyebrow is raised. Uh, and, um, but, you know, such is life. Is that, if that's the hurdle we have to, you know, get over, it's not a, the biggest one in the world. There are worse things. Yeah. Could I finish this off, Dave, by asking you about what you see happening next, uh, what, you, what you want to get into next, what you want to do next? Um, well, I think, and we really haven't really talked about physical cultural studies in kind of definitive terms and there's a reason for that because I think it's very much uh, uh, an in-process project and I'd like to think that you know as we talked about there's various peoples around the world who are somewhat involved and interested in developing it kind of hope that kind of gets taken up and um, there's a, almost a contestation around physical culture studies and it comes it gets to the next stage of development. I think a, a physical culture studies journal is more than appropriate at this point in time and not to institutionalize or create a PCS orthodoxy but just to create a space for um, contesting what precisely what it means and pushing it forward. So I think part of me would like to be involved in that and, and to realize that and uh, and, and to be honest, to, to get the Baltimore work off the ground and um, see what we can do with that. That's, that's really what I'm interested in. Because I think that there's more to Baltimore than there are. You know, and. Uh, well said, Dave Andrews. And I hope that you will come back to the pod and share with us your triumphs. And next time you're back, I want us to talk a lot about Craven Cottage. Because the question that I'm now left with is whether there is more to Fulham than Craven Cottage. There certainly is, and uh, the, the succeeding seasons, forthcoming triumphs will uh, show that your faith is well uh, directed. And in fact, I'm going back to Britain in September and I'm going to buy a season ticket wow. for 2012-13 and I'm very excited. Well, I'm very jealous. Dave Andrews, thank you so much for being here with Toby. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure.